Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. This week... What we saw was an asymmetric relationship having become even more asymmetric. Clara Ferreira-Marquez on the Xi-Putin meeting and just how detrimental sanctions are proving to the state of the Russian economy. Later, Justin Fox on what the slow decline of one industry is telling us about a changing U.S. labor force. First, though, to markets digesting, but not very easily, more ominous inflation data. Chair Jay Powell at the Cato Institute in sight of next week's FOMC meeting. We need to act now forthrightly, strongly, as we have been doing, and we need to keep at it until the job is done. We think we can avoid the, the kind of very high social costs that, that Paul Volcker and the Fed uh, had to bring into, into play in order to get inflation back down and set us up then for, for a long period of, of price stability. Bloomberg Opinion's John Authors joins. So, John, the week started yes. out well. Markets seem to be trading the Russia retreat, the Ukraine advance. Perhaps yeah. it was something soothing in there that there might be some geopolitical stability. But then came the inflation data and equities literally barfed, to put it bluntly. <laughs> it, this was this has been one of the most striking bona fide macro surprises in, in many years, I would say. the uh, I was personally surprised by how poor the inflation numbers were. But it's also very strange to me how markets really had convinced themselves that the peak was definitely in and that more or less any inflation number was going to be consistent with a steady steady decline from here, which thankfully I did point out before it happened that this seemed overconfident. One and decline does not make a trend. Yes, and they, and they had basically set themselves up to step on a rake, like in the cartoons, you know, yes. whack themselves in the face with a rake handle. And that's basically what happened. That said, I was also myself surprised by quite how thoroughly awful the inflation numbers were once you dug into them. Yeah, I mean, and you point this out, how the the various Fed banks and other outputs put out different measures for core inflation. And it had made it seem like core inflation was under control. But actually, all of those measures now, sticky price inflation, trimmed meat, all rising. Yes, and that's really not what very many people at all had been expecting. So these are all the numbers that a year ago, when we were still having a debate about whether this was transitory, people were pointing out, look, these core versions of inflation still aren't that high. This is transitory. And that was a valid argument then. And unfortunately, what's now happened to those numbers shows this is really going to be difficult to bring down. The other critical thing, I suppose, is services inflation. And goods inflation is indeed coming back down services is coming up by more than enough to counteract it services is 
a much more important part of the economy than it used to be. That is, again, very disappointing for many people who are hoping to see something different. Now markets are pricing in the potential for a 100 basis point increase yes. next week. Is that a little too far-fetched? I mean, it was the CPI that made the Fed move last time. It was. There is nothing more important than the CPI for the Fed at this point. Mm. Obviously, unemployment is still at such an encouraging level. The labour market is so strong that that provides no reason for them not to hike. It's all about inflation at this point. I personally think that hiking by the full 100 basis points would carry some risk of looking as though they're running scared. Desperate, yeah. And could therefore undermine itself. So I would bet if I had to, at even odds on a 75 bips rather than 100, we will probably, if they want to make it 100, they will find ways to leak it to uh, our Nick. colleagues or our competitors yeah. between now and the announcement. So I'm not sure it's worth spending too much time agonising over that because it's probably going to uh, become clear. The key that bothers me, which I don't think has been looked at carefully enough, is how quickly can the Fed turn around and start cutting? There has been a belief, which isn't an unreasonable one from, from what we've lived through in the last decade, that there would be problems with either employment or with a sell-off in stocks would prompt the Fed to retreat pretty quickly. Mm. That argument seems flimsy these days. Uh, I am almost inclined to say it's gone. Mm. I mean, immediately after the last FOMC meeting, Fed funds futures were priced so that the rate in January of 2024 would be lower than the rate it's going to be by the end of this month, mm -hmm. which is a remarkable suggestion that this is a transitory tightening, effectively, that we're going to be that far into reverse by then. At this point, I think um, it's the suggestion is that we'll still be a good percentage point higher. By yes, then. That, that, that which this is, is a, so that probably is more important for the long term than whether the Fed decides it really needs to hurry up even more and go with a hundred. It's it's how long they have to stay at how high a level. And how long are they giving these rate hikes to work? Because we all know yes. that it takes time and it works in different parts of the economy at different rates and mm. so on. And what are they looking at to see is it working in the broader economy? I mean, what does a 75 basis point hike entail when it comes to mm. filtering down through the banks and through the system and through loans and so on? Well, I, I guess the critical point for that is on shelter inflation, the housing yeah. market. So yes, oil is more or less beyond the Fed's purview, particularly mm -hmm. with the geopolitical uncertainty at the moment. Shelter, whether you're renting or buying, is so dependent on the rate at which you can take out a mortgage. Yes. That is a rate that shelter inflation is increasing worryingly. We all know that there are various markets that look quite bubbly for buying, which are already seem to be turning. The Fed needs to be sure that it's got the housing market back down again yeah. before it can desist, I think. And I suppose it has the double advantage. First of all, it's a third of the index in round numbers. And secondly, it's the one where monetary policy really unambiguously has a direct effect. I think you need to see that trend reverse. People talk about real estate a lot, whether mm -hmm. they know anything about it. Or otherwise, they talk about it a lot. How much higher rates deter people from buying, cause people to stop putting houses on the market, all the rest of it, is probably the single greatest issue for US CPI at this moment.
John, do you see a scenario at all where inflation continues to rise, even as the Fed continues to hike? I mean, that's basically what we got this month. Could we get it again next month? Well, the headline did come down very slightly. Yeah, mm. I, I, I can imagine that. I think it's unlikely. Mm. I would still, barring something horrible in Ukraine, I still think the peak for headline inflation is probably in mm. because of oil. It's difficult for it not to be. If inflation stays like this for another couple of months and you get another round of wage negotiations coming at the turn of the year, yeah. I can imagine headline inflation getting above its peak from earlier this year. Um, we are starting to see that wage price spiral a tiny bit. I mean, we're seeing Amazon pony up now a little, at least for seasonal delivery drivers. We're seeing more and more strikes across the country. But, I mean, it, that's one of the, the fascinating, imponderable questions is, obviously, the balance is going to move from capital to labour to some extent. But the balance had moved a quite remarkable way towards capital and unions are you know, weaker, less able to assert themselves than they've been in a century or so. Yeah, yeah. That means that you can perhaps overstate how much that effect is going to, and, to happen. And membership is still tiny relative to the labour force. I think wage pressure is on balance likely, but again, this is one of the imponderables we'll find out about this country, exactly how intense that is and how far it takes inflation. So, John, what is the question that Fed Chair Jay Powell is pondering tonight? <laughs> I do feel somewhat sorry for him, and I'm very glad I'm not a central banker. He has been so good as to admit that the Fed made a mistake last year, that mm -hmm. I colleague Mike McKenzie was commenting earlier today that saying that inflation was transitory last year is going to go down with the subprime market is contained <laughs> from 2007. Yes. They all uh, get one. You get yes, one. You yes, get exactly. One. He probably will be giving some thought to 75 versus 100, but I don't think that's his greatest one. It's about how they signal for the future. I think the dot plot where the Fed governors can use it as a signal for their intentions. We get a new dot plot next week. I suspect that the Fed will take the chance to tell the market, listen, you are wrong. We do not think we are cutting next year at all. And if you see a dot plot where their expectations for the Fed funds rate for the next few years rises significantly, that could be another really tough moment. Mm tiny bit of chatter about England, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> You're just back. Yes. And you obviously saw a transition. You saw well, the transition <laughs> from Boris Johnson to Liz Truss. I was. I saw that. I saw that transition, and I, I and came left. home just before the <laughs> another transition from another Liz. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. There are over sixty million of us to choose from, and apparently Liz Truss is our best. Right. Best we can now, manage for being prime minister. So now it's her chance to see what she can do. You know, obviously the Queen's passing is a big moment. It can only be. Plenty of opinions about it, but mm -hmm. it's a big deal. I'm refraining, obviously. <laughs> uh, uh, it was quite big of her to, to shake hands with McGuinness, thinking it through. But, uh, well, anyway, moving on. Of, but if we could go on to further discussion, <laughs> let's let's not talk about the rather vexed, awful history of Britain and its treatment but of Liz Ireland. But Liz will she be able to carry out the policies that she's promised? My best guess is that she won't, that promising tax cuts was... I hope she's going to surprise me positively. I took a dim view of the way she handled that campaign because she was basically promising something she was 
plenty clever enough to know that she wasn't going to be able to deliver. Yes, she must have known. Right? And, you know, that's distasteful. Yeah. You know, Kwasi Kwarteng, you know, another bright guy. Um, he was a Rishi guy before. Yes. Talks. And, you know, very talented guy who knows what he's doing. I imagine, you know, we have a very difficult situation, a very febrile situation that does give him a certain amount of room for manoeuvre, a certain mm. ability to do something completely different from what was expected if the circumstances demand it. I mean, how? Gosh knows what inflation is going to be next year in the UK, but I mean, it could well, be at 20%. Yeah, I mean, the, the UK has very particular, serious reasons to be worried about inflation. Some of them self-inflicted, um, but let's not reopen the Brexit wounds too mm. too widely. And some of them a matter of bad luck. The currency is under pressure and, and of course, uh, the energy. are related as well. Yes. So, yeah. The Bank of England, I think, was very commendably honest, predicting that there's going to be a recession, that mm. the economy will be smaller at the end of next year than it is now. I think that's probably right to get everybody into a defensive crouch. And I think both Kwasi Kwarteng and, and Liz Truss are probably smart enough to know that if they take some pain now, the key thing is whether they can get the economy recovering enough to get people thinking the direction is correct by the next election, which doesn't have to be for over two years still. And that that is possible, and that, that's their aim. But it's whether they have enough communication ability, which I think it's fair to say Liz Truss's greatest weakness you know, she is not like Tony Blair no. or Boris Johnson when it comes to communicating. Whether she has the communication and political skills to get the government through the next year or so when the economy is going to be really bad. I mean, the question really is, does she last longer than Boris Johnson, who didn't even last as long as if she, May if, in she, the end? if she can't win another election, she yeah. won't. Yeah. At the moment, not that Keir Starmer is exciting anybody, but Labour looks more electable than it has done since, since Blair. Tony Blair, yeah, yeah and exactly. If the economy doesn't go considerably better than it seems likely at the moment, the betting has to be on Labour to win. Mm. Boy, but, what a turnaround that would be. <laughs> it's it's quite something. I, but Liz Truss, this is a very interesting piece Therese Raphael wrote. Margaret Thatcher, as a minister, was really very unimpressive. She was education minister. She was best known for cancelling free school milk I schools. remember. Well, I wasn't there. Maggie, I, I, I actually was. Mm. Maggie Thatcher, the milk snatcher, she used to be yeah, called. Yeah, it was and we, so you know, unreasonable, yeah. yeah when, I, when I was five, I, we used to get given a bottle of milk in the mm. middle of the morning. And when I was six, that stopped. And yeah. people weren't happy about to it. Children, I mean. So, so she generally didn't seem to be that good a politician on the basis of how she did as a minister in the early 70s. Justice Liz Trust really did doesn't strike me as being a particularly special good politician on the basis of her record to date. And that helped people underestimate her. People yes. really didn't know quite what they were dealing with until... Uh, and, and she was aware of that too. Yes. Yeah. And I think Liz Truss, who's a very different person in many ways, but I think she is also somebody who benefits from being easy to underestimate. Bloomberg Opinions, John Authors. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Pandemic labor force trends have been fascinating, but Bloomberg Opinion's Justin Fox discovered one trend that predates the pandemic that tells us a lot about the U.S. labor force. He joins me now. Dry cleaners closing down. We're literally almost at half the amount of dry cleaners that we were at back in 2000. So there were more than 28,000 then. Now there are 16,500. It points to several trends, though, not just our assumptions. So let's go through some of them. Why are dry cleaners closing? Well, so I initially looked at it because obviously the pandemic has been really, it was tough on lots of businesses when things completely shut down. And now even as restaurants are full, Fewer people are going to the office and sort of the long running trend toward dressing more casually when you do go to the office seems to, at least in my experience here at Bloomberg, accelerated over the course of the pandemic. So I was expecting that there would be this plummet at the pandemic. And then I looked at the data, and this is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, does this thing called the quarterly census of employment and wages that keeps track of how many establishments of different kinds of businesses there are. And it it definitely accelerated with the pandemic, but it's basically been dropping at about 2% a year, at least for the past two decades. So you see it all around New York City, your local laundrette closes, your local dry cleaner closes, and it's very sad. I had always chalked it up, at least in recent years, to venture capital funds and hedge funds buying up real estate and not caring if the real estate was empty or full. But it turns out that that's not actually the main reason. Yeah, I don't. I mean, New York, it was rising in the number of, and this is Manhattan, actually. In Manhattan, the number of dry cleaning laundry establishments was rising through 2018, sort of the opposite of the national trend. And then it dropped in 2018 and 2019, and then even more during the pandemic. I think the dropping in the 2018, 2019 is all the EPA. This new standard, well, it's not that new. It was, I think, put in the Federal Register back in 2006 or 2007, basically banning the use of the chemical, and I'm going to say it wrong, perchlora, whatever, in apartment buildings. And Mm -hmm. lots of dry cleaners in Manhattan are in the basements of apartment buildings. You can do dry cleaning without it. And there are more and more of these sort of organic dry cleaning places that avoid it. But I think for a lot of older dry cleaning establishments, that was sort of the last straw. They had to stop using it by 2000. You also figured out that obviously some of this was a trend that we're seeing in immigration. Yeah, I mean, this is basically more hypothesis than something you can really get data on. But it is known that Korean Americans in particular are wildly overrepresented in the dry cleaning business. Um, and, and you know, it's just one of those classic, an immigrant group comes over, develops an expertise, other family members, friends come over. I mean, the problem with the Korean American communities, the big Korean immigration wave ended a long time ago because South Korea is now quite affluent and it's also not growing, really, has very low birth rates. And so that immigration wave ended a long time ago. The kids of Korean American dry cleaner owners, I would guess most of them, are, have gone off to college and have fancy careers. And so uh, we, clearly there's this whole bunch of 
aging, dry cleaning, laundry owners who don't really have an obvious person to hand off to. How much is cost an issue, if at all? I mean, obviously, we've seen a huge amount of inflation and some of that has been services inflation, but it turns out we don't really spend that much on dry cleaning in the end. I mean, we, we spend a very small amount of overall consumer spending on it, although you know, the, the, I, I cite numbers in my piece, and that's just all spending on laundry and dry cleaning outside the house. Back in 1959, which is when the data starts, it was half of a percent of all consumer spending. Now it's 0.07%. Part of that is just because everybody's got, well, not everybody in New York, but everybody in most places has washing machines at mm-hmm. home now. So it's less that people are doing less of whatever. It, it's just that it's been shifted from something that people paid someone to do outside the house to do it inside the house. Because, I mean, one interesting thing is that inflation in um, dry cleaning and laundry has been higher than overall inflation, and overall inflation is pretty high. And and that's been true for years, and it's definitely true over the last two years. You also found out, and this wouldn't be any surprise to anybody, that the highest concentration in the U.S. is in New York City with 29 per 100,000 residents. The lowest, obviously, is only 1.6 per 100,000 residents, and that's in Pima County, Arizona. I, I guess it's self-evident why there are so many in New York, but are we seeing more of a decline in New York than we are elsewhere? I mean, it's just a totally different chart in New York. It's it's it was rising, doing really well, and then this plummet. Pima County is Tucson, so it's partly the weather and the kind of jobs there. It's not a big, really white-collar jobs place, and it's tons of retirees. And, you know, other places with lots of retirees are relatively low on it. One interesting place with really high number especially of workers in laundries and dry cleaners is Clark County, Nevada, which is Las Vegas. And I guess that, I mean, that's more people washing sheets and other linens for hotels and stuff. Bloomberg Opinion's Justin Fox. Don't forget, we're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite platform. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Chinese President Xi Jinping made his first trip outside China and Hong Kong in three years this week. Originally, his first international trip was supposed to be Indonesia in November for the G20, which has extended invites to President Biden and President Putin as well. This visit to Uzbekistan for the SCO Summit, or Shanghai Cooperation Organization, gave Xi the opportunity to meet face-to-face with Russia's president and give the world an opportunity to assess China's position on the war. Bloomberg's Clara Ferreira Marquez joins. Clara, what did we learn from this visit? It's a really interesting opportunity for us to take the temperature of this no-limits partnership. So they had met in February, if you remember, just before the start of the Beijing Olympics. Um, And this is the first time that they had met since then and since 
particularly the invasion of Ukraine. And what we saw was an asymmetric relationship having become even more asymmetric. So we saw Putin really bending over to say that he understood what he said was China's concerns, recognizing China's balanced position, mentioning all sorts of trade figures, but getting really very little, if anything, in return. Now, that's what we saw, but we don't know what happened behind closed doors and likely never will. So it's quite clear that President Xi Jinping wants to give signals to the international community. Is there a chance that he said something different or took a different tone with Putin behind closed doors? Well, as you say, it's a sort of unknowable, isn't it? But it it was interesting to me that there were a few really low-hanging fruit that she could have given Putin at this meeting. For example, they could have advanced some sort of agreement, even a memorandum of understanding around Parrot Siberia 2, which is a gas pipeline, a really important part of Russia's shift to the east. And they didn't do that. So even though Russian officials had talked it up as being close, it didn't actually materialize. There was nothing concrete, no numbers. And I think Putin could have really done with that. However, the theater is important too, allowing the two men to be seen together, you know, around a very large circular table, but all the same together without masks. I mean, all of that is very important too and allows Putin to play this at home. It was interesting to see Putin take the position of subordinate, because that's really what happened in the way. He said that he understood Beijing's questions and concerns about his invasion of Ukraine. And he also made mention of the US and its allies' movements in the Taiwan Strait, which has annoyed Taiwan, obviously. But that presumably was an olive branch to Beijing, in other words. Is he subordinate now to Xi Jinping? Well, I think it's certainly clear that Putin has never been in a weaker negotiating position, and I would I would really put it that way. I mean, if you think, as you say, the optics of the meeting, and it was very um, odd how we, we, we had it coming through. We had some feed, and we really just saw that the initial comments where Putin was very clear to call him comrade and make all these concessions on Taiwan, as you say, talking about a foreign policy tandem, which is quite an interesting word, a word that China did not repeat back to him. Mm. And in fact, what we got was Xi telling him that he would work with Russia to inject stability and positive energy to a world in chaos. So that was a not particularly well-availed reminder of what uh, Xi really needs, which is stability. Does it tell us anything about Xi's appetite for, well, I don't want to call it war, but some kind of operation in Taiwan? No, I think at this point that is really hard to read into this. I mean, what we would say is obviously through the whole Ukraine campaign, China has been taking notes. It's learned a lot of lessons in terms of economic resilience, in terms of military preparedness. I think here all we've seen is that uh, he's willing to continue this balancing act. He certainly won't leave Putin in the cold, but with the Party Congress a few weeks away, he also isn't willing to abandon his pro-Russian neutrality, if you call it, to come any closer to Putin. Will she have promised Putin anything? It's unlikely we'd find out if he did, or at least until we saw something on the ground, if he promised him any kind of military support or anything like that. But, I mean, it sure doesn't seem like he did. I think that's very unlikely. So China does not, in general, have allies, for example, military allies, apart from North Korea. Um, They are very happy to run joint military exercises with Russia, joint naval patrols, they really have never signaled a desire to go any further than that. I also don't see why she would promise anything. Why would it be in his interest to do so? Because he is providing just enough rhetorical support, just enough sort of verbal backing uh, without running the risk of, of incurring secondary sanctions. Clara, will Putin change his mind about the G20 after this or does he have so much of an ego that he would turn up again with world leaders and continue to, to speak, even though it's quite clear that he has to very much parse his words? 
Well, uh, the G20 is still two months away, so a lot could still happen between now and then. And remember that it won't be just the G20. Indonesia has also invited President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine. I, I'd be very surprised if the war is still ongoing, uh, if, if Zelensky actually turns up. It's much more likely to be a remote connection. But all the same, um, I'm pretty sure that Putin would not pass up the opportunity to be there in person if Zelensky is making any kind of appearance. Um, and it is very important for Putin, both domestically and in terms of projection to the global south, to be part of these large geopolitical um, confabs. You know, he really needs to be uh, seen to be a leader that still counts, still um, means business. We also this week got a huge raft of new sanctions from the United States on Russia. Given Russia's unique position exporting energy, are the sanctions that had already been placed on Russia biting enough yet? Well, I think there's a lot of sort of misconception about how sanctions work, and I think a lot of that was due to the unprecedented nature of, you know, what was imposed early on, this sort of plethora of financial and, and trade punishments, effectively, cutting off Russia, and it's never been done for an economy of this size. So people expected instant rewards, and unfortunately that's just not how sanctions work, mm. especially when you're dealing with a major commodity exporting economy and you haven't actually sanctioned those commodities. What we are seeing now is that these things are trickling down. The oil sanctions, the EU um, oil sanctions will come into effect. The oil price cap will come into effect. All of that is beginning to bite. We've seen quite substantial reductions in the Russian budget. Uh, we've seen a drop in Russian energy revenues, in particular in August, as, as the prices have come off. Because remember, you know, the war, at the beginning, they were selling less, but the price was very high. Now we also have a global, cooling, uh, global economy that is cooling. Chinese demand is coming down because of COVID lockdowns um, and other, other factors. So it, it is biting. I mean, the, Russia, however, can sustain a lot of pain. Well, you did a fantastic piece comparing South Africa sanctions from the 1980s and what we're seeing today and basically painting a picture of the types of lessons we can learn from the South Africa sanctions. Give us a little bit of a summary of what you found out when you went back to look. So full disclosure, I, part of the reason I did that is because that's where I am from. I grew up in Cape Town and I was there for the 1980s when all of this was going on. But the interest here, I think, is not to draw a sort of perfect parallel. In fact, as sort of said earlier, there are no real perfect parallels with Russia's sanctions situation today. The interesting thing about South Africa is, A, that it was a commodity exporting economy. That there were lots of loopholes. But because of South Africa's fragility going into the worst of the sanctions, which really came in in 1985, 1986, because of its economic fragility, it was already an economy that was uncompetitive and inefficient because of a variety of distortions that the mm. apartheid regime had introduced. The sanctions were very important. They were very important contributors because it was already dealing with a sclerotic economy. And that's, I think, the really important um, message. For the Russian case, which is that you are already dealing with an economy that is barely growing at 1%, 2%. You know, real disposable incomes are already shrinking even before we got to the invasion and the sanctions that have followed. So far, Russia has managed its external debts. There's a kind of constant looming default, but we never actually see Russia default on bonds. Is it coming this year? I think the default here is very, it's very different to past, you know, even sort of South Africa's fiscal constraints. I mean, Russia has created to some extent, a fiscal fortress. It's not for lack of ability to pay, or rather it's not for lack of cash, and they're not paying their debts. So I'm not sure it's, it's as helpful an indicator. It's probably more an indicator of just how isolated Russia has become. What I would really watch in terms of how constrained they are is 
where the budget is allocated, how input substitution is going, and the answer is it's going quite poorly. If you look at the auto sector, uh, if you look at computers and computing, anything to do with technology at the brain drain, those will really be the things. That is where we will see the real hit. We saw a huge change this week. We saw the Russian army retreating. We have proof of that. We know that Ukraine has been able to advance. And we also saw some dissent within Russia, which is maybe a little bit unusual. I mean, 50 municipal leaders and perhaps more criticizing Vladimir Putin and sort of putting pressure on him to back down. I mean, is that as huge an event as it seems? So I think you're right. Two things have happened that are very important. One is the strategic defeat. And I think we can, you know... Obviously, lots of things are changing on the front line, etc. This is still a moving picture, but the counteroffensive and the speed with which Russia has collapsed is unquestionably a turning point in the war, certainly an inflection point, and it is a strategic defeat for Putin, and one that is very difficult to explain at home. And we really caught them at the beginning of the week struggling to find a narrative to match this, not least because Putin over the weekend had been completely silent on it. So he was busy inaugurating giant Ferris wheels. And what we saw was this surge of discontent on particular pro-Kremlin nationalist channels and Telegram, which is, um, if you think about how restricted Russian social media has become, those channels have huge following. We saw it on television to some extent, so people really questioning, you know, what are we doing here? We haven't even got full mobilization. We're calling this a special operation and it's not working. People wanted answers. And then we also saw the expressions of dissent, as you said, among the mayors, among the local leaders. It's still too early to say whether that will really filter through, but it has begun to put pressure on him at a time when Vladimir Putin has very few answers. He needs more material on the front. He needs more manpower. He's really running out of people. A lot of men who've done their first tour of duty don't want to come back. Any extension of conscription will take a long time to feed through to the front. I don't think that necessarily means we're just about to press the nuclear button, but certainly he is in a pretty tight spot and will need to decide whether he's ready to take the political cost of a mass mobilisation, of really putting the country and the economy on a war footing. Clara Ferreira Marquez. That does it for this week. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.